Hi, all. I'm Abigail Disney, and you're listening to All Ears. Thank you so much for listening to our first season. It's been an honor and a privilege to talk to some really amazing people. We started this podcast when COVID seemed to change everything, and we've rethought it as the murder of George Floyd and then the outcry that it sparked changed everything all over again. So it's time for us to take a little bit of a break. We'll be back with more great guests and honest conversations in season two in the fall. We taped the episode you're about to hear sort of a long time ago, or it feels that way, on June the 1st. It's about business and capitalism and how to do things better, but the protests were really at their peak when we taped it. So it wasn't the right interview to air in early June, but it's still an incredibly important interview. So enjoy my conversation with Rebecca Henderson, and thanks for listening to season one. My guest today is Rebecca Henderson, who teaches business ethics at the Harvard Business School and has just published a book called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. And since the world is on fire, she seemed like a good person to talk to. (laughs) She is one of the smartest people I've ever met. And I was certainly delighted to learn that someone was teaching ethics at the Harvard Business School. But better than that, I watched her address lots of audiences of businessmen and women to talk about what's become of business and how to pull it out of this Darth Vader death spiral it seems to be in. So Rebecca Henderson, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you. So I'm gonna start in a very official way now. <laughs> Great. Okay, 50% of the students at Harvard Business School believe capitalism is broken. Well, first of all, what? <laughs> and second of all, what, what do you think they mean? I think they have an intuition that things are badly wrong. They see that social mobility is falling, that the odds are less than 50% that a child born in America will make more than their parents. That's a huge change and much lower uh, than it used to be. They see that apparently no one is really dealing with the climate crisis. And then they look around at the political system. More than 70% of the people in the US think the system is rigged, that their their preferences, their vote makes no difference. And when you look at some of the research, they may be right. The legislation that gets passed reflects the preferences of the rich. We see tax cuts. We don't see increases in the minimum wage. We see in the stimulus package, Billions of dollars going to real estate developers and not to the local pizza store. I mean, the sense that that things are not working is, I think, really pervasive. And and that's why capitalism is broken. Right. So, you know, the, the obvious question is business ethics and oxymoron. 
Absolutely not. <laughs> Good, I'm relieved to hear that. And tell me why. Business is fundamentally a moral enterprise. Its ultimate goal, its social legitimacy, derives from the fact that it promises to produce prosperity and freedom. Prosperity in the sense of all the good things we like, the food and the houses and the shampoo and the cell phones, and great jobs, a major source of dignity and respect in, in every society, and individual freedom, mostly freedom of opportunity. Capitalism at its best uh, doesn't care if you're purple and have tentacles growing out of the top of your head. What it cares about is can you work hard and are you engaged? So yes, at its best, capitalism is fundamentally a moral enterprise. So how did it get to the point where the perception is that the two things have nothing to do with each other? We forgot. We forgot that free markets need free politics, that capitalism only works when it's balanced by a strong society and a democratically accountable government. Mm -hmm. What do I mean? I mean, let me be very concrete. Capitalism only works when pollution is controlled. If there are no regulations on what you can burn, what you can dump into the river, any business person will do what they can. They'll say, oh, I can burn fossil fuels. No problem. I'll just do that. I can throw my waste into the river. No problem. I'll just do that. And my goodness, that's what capitalism has done. So we're looking at a world that's now badly polluted and at risk of climate change. If you systematically destroy the rules that set a level playing field, mm -hmm. if you tell capitalists they can do anything to make money, whoa, mm -hmm. they have a temptation to do so. And so we've gone radically off the rails. Right. You know, I don't think we can talk about any of this without talking about Milton Friedman, mm -hmm. who was a very popular economist in the 1970s and has had a massive influence on the way we do things. Milton Friedman said, your duty is to do, you know, almost everything you can to maximize profits, provided it's legal and ethical. And there was this big asterisk on that statement, or there should have been, and we missed the asterisk. And the asterisk said, apart from undermining the health of the democracy and the the vitality of the democratic process. I mean, if you make money by ch fixing the rules in your own favor, yeah. that's not free market capitalism. That's okay. just crony capitalism. That's just manipulating the political process for your own benefit. And crony capitalism always eventually kills itself. Eventually. Well, uh, it, it chokes itself to oh, death. Oh, Abby. I mean, that's why gout kills a wealthy man. Yeah. You know, it's just you tend to gorge on the goodies. I mean, crony capitalism kills the whole society. You get a handful at the yeah. top that's making out like bandits and everyone else is struggling. I mean, look at Russia, classic crony capitalism. And I think a real capitalist, you know, someone who really cares about prosperity and freedom should be appalled by the prospect of crony capitalism. Right, right. So let me, let me ask you this. People tend not to talk about the Powell memo, which was not long after Friedman started talking about shareholder primacy. And I wonder, this interplay between free markets and free politics, I think, got really disrupted by this Powell memo, which I know I'm saying these words, and they mean nothing to most people who are hearing them. 
Can you tell me what that was exactly? Sure. It was a memo written by a Republican lawyer who actually went on to become a justice on the Supreme Court about the fact that business was under attack from unprincipled radicals who didn't understand the power of the free market. He says, if our system is to survive, top management must be equally concerned with protecting and preserving the system itself. But how was that translated? That was translated into spending a great deal of money to make sure that government didn't effectively regulate business. Basically, to try and take control of the political process. But what happened was that it really helped trigger a major political movement by leading business people to try and make sure that the political process did not threaten what they saw as the health of business. And their view of what that meant was what we're living with now, take regulations mm -hmm. to zero. I mean, literally, the current administration announced that they would stop enforcing environmental regulations, mm -hmm. just stop because of the pandemic. I mean, yeah. cutting taxes to the bone so that there wasn't funding for healthcare or education. It was translated into a wholesale attack on anything that might hold capitalism in balance or to account. Yeah. There was a driving out of a discourse around morals and ethics. And when those things were driven out, they were also looked upon as sort of childlike and naive and, and ridiculous inside of the rooms of the people who saw themselves as serious, hardcore capitalists. I think you're right on target. Once business people came to believe that maximizing shareholder value was the moral thing, they essentially bracketed morals and all the ambiguity, all the difficult issues, at least as far as they related to the purpose of the firm. We told managers, your job is to maximize this number. And we gave them very strong personal incentives to do so. I think we have to add to Milton Friedman, Michael Jensen, who was a professor at the Harvard Business School for a long time and wrote one of the most highly cited economics papers of all time, which was about agency theory. Mm. And he said, if you don't maximize profits, you're betraying your responsibility to your investors. So that was another moral place to go, as it were, is, okay, mm -hmm. let me just mm -hmm. put my head oh, down yeah. and maximize. And that's exactly what happened over the next decades. Corporations just really embraced the idea that they could do whatever as long as they made money. It, it turns out that treating people like things is bad for business. And it turns out that destroying the planet is bad for business. You know, the trouble is, it's really good in the short term. I mean, my pointy-headed scholarly research is all about the fact that when you start treating people with dignity and respect, creating jobs with reasonable wages in which people are empowered to make decisions, firms become significantly more productive, more innovative, and more creative. That doesn't mean mm -hmm that they always beat out the old kind of red in tooth and claw firms. It does mean they can survive in the world. And the thing about capitalism, red in tooth and claw, is it destroys the long term of the whole society. I mean, we're living with that right now. Years of 
bad jobs, structural racism, uh, discrimination, have left people struggling just to get by. This is not stable. What, mm. what I think we see from the research is these kinds of societies do not survive. Um, they, and and I, I can't believe I'm talking about the United States, the most successful, the most prosperous, one of the freest countries on the planet with an amazing history of doing the right thing. Yeah. How do you teach ethics to people who who have shown up to business school why do they come to business school these days? And what are you hoping to get through to them? More and more students come to business school because they're hoping to make a difference, because they see business as such a powerful institution. And yes, they're trying to make a good living for themselves, but many of them are also looking around and saying, where can I go that will make a difference? And how do we, we, how do we teach ethics or morals? We give the students examples, we give them cases. We say, here's Facebook, what do you think? Mm -hmm. The business model says basically you need to tell potential advertisers everything about groups of consumers. You know, we, we want to take all your personal information. We want to uh, basically forget about privacy, at least at the group level and just sell it. Uh, we want to, have everyone on our platform. We want people clicking. So we're okay if we see political speech getting increasingly hateful and vitriolic and um, we see bots flooding, flooding Facebook. You know, hey, free speech. And of course, these are super tough and difficult issues. We try and put the students in the seat of business people who have to grapple with free speech versus privacy. How do you think about that that tension? You're running an energy company. You may be fired if you don't maximize profits, but you can see climate change coming towards you. What should you do? You run a major retailer like Mercadona. You've been paying over the odds for some years. You, the company's now in trouble, going through a difficult time. Should you cut wages? We try and put mm. the students in real situations of real business people and get them to think through what they would do, how they would think about this. Do you think they're different, these younger ones? I mean, are they reacting to the same cases differently? Oh, the students are completely different. When I started teaching 30 years ago, um, it, it didn't cross my mind to talk about uh, the effect of firms on the health and well-being of society in the long term. Now the students, are, even the right-wing students are saying, we have a problem here. <laughs> you know, how do we think about it? What are we going to do? Um, the students are totally engaged with these conversations. They don't all agree, but they talk and they wrestle and they bring their own values into the classroom. And and sort of that's what we need, right? We need to rediscover that conversation right through um, our firms and our society and our meetings and our gathering places. So do you think someday when we arrive at some time when these people are in boardrooms, do you think that they will look at their decisions about wages as moral decisions at long last? Only if we change the government. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. I'm very realistic. I'm not saying to you that business people will fix things. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. You know, we need a massive political uh, movement to change the rules. What I believe is that ethical business people can be allies, Mm -hmm. that we can build a profitable economy, a growing economy, doing the right thing. My hope is that business will stop Stop being such a destructive blocker Mm -hmm. in so many ways of the kinds of policies that we need. That would be a huge step forward. And that, yes, together we can build the kind of cooperation. I mean, let's be clear, this isn't some kind of crazy pipe dream. Mm -hmm. There are countries that are run like this right now. Um, In Germany Mm -hmm. and Japan, senior business people think about themselves ethically all the time and think about their role in the broader society all the time and sit down with government and sit down with unions to try and do the right thing for the whole society. We know that humans can do this. It's possible here. You know, sometimes people say, Rebecca, you're not really talking about reimagining capitalism, are you? You're talking about, could we please go back to the balanced capitalism we had in the 50s and 60s only without the racism and the misogyny? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Yes, we we did this in the US. We had a society in which government was strong and business was strong and employees were strong and it grew fast. People were well paid. It was a healthy and strong capitalism. Yeah. Well, I would hope. I just I worry that the racism and the sexism were part of the equation that made it strong. Well, yes, there there is that. <laughs> I mean, so I don't really want to go back to the 50s at all. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, You know, so much of the damage that Donald Trump has done has not been because he's legislated his way to destruction. He's violated norm after norm after norm after norm, like age-old norms that until he violated them, we didn't even realize they were norms. And, And much of the damage, you know, of the last... 50 years in business has also been violating norms. Like, can those things be legislated ultimately? I think norms cannot be legislated, but the chances of building norms increase as the rules change. Mm, yeah. You need both. We need a moral and cultural revolution. All this talk about purpose and community, it's absolutely central. For the last 50 years, we've been obsessed with me right now. We've forgotten us and later. Mm -hmm. Every major faith tradition says that's a catastrophic mistake, both at the individual level and at the social level. So yes, we need to rediscover that we are one people, that other people are integral to our well-being, that doing the right thing is the only way to behave. But we also need to change the rules. Yeah. And we need to do those together as we move forward, as we stumble forward. I mean, happy as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, you know, the problems we face can be so seemingly so insurmountable. Action is so hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I have seen 
what individuals who start moving can do. People who stand up and say, this sucks, let's fix it. Right, right. And the system is rigged, by the way. It just is. But a normal, regular garden variety person, what can they do? What can a regular person do? First, where do we work? Many firms are changing because their employees are demanding that they do things differently. There are purpose-driven CEOs who are really taking their firms in new directions. So often, they were pushed by the people inside the firm who said, you know, we could grow this product more sustainably. So being a business person is important. Being a consumer is important. Firms Mm. really care what their customers think. If you refuse to buy products produced from firms that behave badly, you will make a very significant difference. Mm. You are an individual. You have friends. You can start changing the way you behave. So little gestures like not eating meat, like tipping properly when you know wait staff are not properly compensated, like refusing to use gig services when they don't take care of the people who work for them, putting solar panels on your roof. You may think my individual action makes no difference. All the social psychology literature suggests that when other people see you acting, they change. When people stop flying, for example, and announce why they're doing it, all their friends are significantly less likely to fly. And last but not least, and most importantly, get politically involved. When people show up, when they insist their voices are heard, when they push to get money out of politics to make sure no voter is prevented from, from, from voting, that's what changes systems. We have immense power in this country because we still have the power of the ballot. And it's so easy to sit at home. Well, right now we're all sitting at home and think there's nothing we can do. (laughs) Small groups getting together, joining in pursuit of the things they care about. Whoa, that makes politicians as jumpy as heck for good reasons. We have the power to change this this system. Yeah, I mean, what's happening right now is going to change us all forever. Um, And had there been better, more responsive government to the well-displayed anger that was building long before now, we wouldn't be looking at the violence we see today. Well, to be fair, Abby, how many people looked the other way? How many people didn't do all we could to ensure that black citizens were treated equally, that brown citizens were treated equally, that the police were not armed to the teeth. So many of us were complacent. I mean, I hold myself, you know, I've been worried about these issues for 15 years. I've been trying to make a difference. And I think I should have done more. I could have done more. And, And if we can mobilize that, I think... Yeah. I I persist in being hopeful. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, I think that actually is a great way to draw this to a close. You have been wonderful, Rebecca, and brilliant, as always. Rebecca Henderson is professor of business ethics at the Harvard Business School and the author of a great quarantine read. (laughs) I have it all marked up. Um, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Just the book we need when the world is on fire, right, Rebecca? (laughs) 
So that's the end of season one, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the fall. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and spread the word. Thoughts, questions, feedback? You can reach us at podcast at forkfilms.com. And thanks to my All Ears team, Kathleen Hughes, Aideen Kane, Alexis Pancrazi, Christine Schomer, Kat Vecchio, Lauren Winbush, and Sabrina Yates. Our theme music was composed by Bob Golden. Thanks for listening. So we're good?